Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Welcome to the Library of Mistakes podcast. I'm Russell Napier, the keeper of the library, a beautifully designed building in Edinburgh housing more than 4,000 books about the mistakes that the world keeps repeating, particularly in finance and business. The idea of the library is to help us all learn from these mistakes and stop making them so often. There are also now libraries of mistakes in Lausanne, in Switzerland and in Pune, in India. Visit librarymistakes.com to find out more. The library is owned by Didasco, a financial educational charity based in Scotland, which also runs an online course called Advanced Valuation in Financial Markets, and its in-person variety, which we hold in London twice a year, called A Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more about the courses, see the link to Didasco in the podcast show notes. I am delighted to be talking today with Dan McCrum, author of Money Men. I'll give the subtitle. It's a long subtitle, A Hot Startup, A Billion Dollar Fraud, A Fight for the Truth. And it's probably that last bit, which is the most thing that really sets out this story. Uh, and I wanted to set the scene for how this is really very different from any other story you've heard before by talking about the man who was the chief operating officer of this company, Wirecard. Uh, his name was Jan Marshallek, and just a couple of extracts from Dan's book to set the scene as to why this is not your normal story of corporate fraud. Marshall Act moved seamlessly among investors, oligarchs, and spies. And the combat Zatara, that had been a short selling report, he returned to his network of contacts inside and outside the Austrian state security apparatus. Later in the book, what sort of friends did Marshall Act have? Was Wirecard politically connected, protected even? Another tip of unknown origin, alleged discussion of a project to move money out of Syria, a war zone where the government faced international sanctions via Vienna. Murphy, that was a colleague of Dan's at the, the FT, quietly pulled me aside. We needed to have a chat somewhere away from any electronics where we definitely couldn't be overheard. We went and found an empty internal room. Slightly shamefaced, he admitted he'd kept something to himself. I didn't want to distract you from the main story or freak you out. There's a Russian angle here. Marsalak has the recipe for nerve gas, Novichok. I looked at Murphy as if he just said Marsalak had faked the moon landings. Uh, and finally, from the book, there was more. John describes sprawling snooping operations. It wasn't just Paul Murphy and me who had been targeted. More than 30 private detectives were running around London with hidden cameras trying to find evidence of short sellers colluding. So, Dan, well, congratulations. You made it through. This was indeed a fight for the truth. Now, by, by 2019, this company has a market capitalization of 28 billion US dollars. Can you tell us what the truth was and what they said the truth was and the difference between the two and what you'd spent over five years trying to reveal? Well, Russell, thank you for that great introduction. And, um, yeah, Jan Marsalek is a fascinating character. We must come back to him. But the story is also about the company. And it was that thing that we see a lot of, right? The technology company that promises the world. It's going to transform, disrupt, and change the way we do business. And Wirecard's particular flavor was payments. If you had an online business, it's the company that will help you take credit card payments from your customers. It's pretty simple, right? It claimed, you know, it was the European PayPal. And it had come from these very lowly beginnings 
to be one of Germany's most valuable listed companies. It was in the DAX 30, 30 biggest of them. And it said, you know, it was focused on the cashless society. But really at the heart of it, it had been a very long-running fraud. It started out money laundering for online poker, you know, in jurisdictions where online gambling wasn't allowed. And then over time, the money laundering wasn't big enough. And there was a bit of a crisis in it. The regulators were starting to look at it. So it started just faking the numbers instead. And what it came down to was sort of astoundingly simple. It had these three friends who it said were its business partners. In any of that dubious, dirty money, it would send to them and they would process the payments and send back lots of commission. And what it turned out was it was a giant fake. None of it was real. It had sort of reached the pinnacle of European business based on nothing but hot air. So the interesting thing is who believed the hot air. So let's let's start with a list of people who didn't see what you could see. Uh, SoftBank, who in, invested in this company. Moody's, who gave it a uh, investment-grade credit rating. Uh, EY, who signed off after some issues, actually, or raised early, did sign off on uh, issues in the Asian bet. KPMG, who put out a report uh, vindicating some of the payments. Baffin, the German regulator who supported the company. Uh, and actually Angela Merkel, who lobbied for the company in China. That's quite a long list of people who didn't see this fraud. So I think we need to delve a little bit more into how, how it was hidden and why so many people missed it. Once again, I was going to read from uh, your book. And, and this is, you know, people who listen to this podcast are on the whole investors. Uh, and there's an important lesson here, I think, and it's, it's really well covered in your, in your book. Uh, and let me read from, from the book. By then, I had a well-developed theory. Uh, the Ashisha situation suggested Wirecard was faking some of its sales and profits, then using its purchase of Asian companies to hide the fraud, which is why the numbers got bigger every year. Leo Perry explained the mechanics of this to me. Faking profits, you end up with a problem of fake cash. At the end of the year, the auditor will expect to see a healthy bank balance. It's the first thing they check. So what you have to do is spend that fake cash on fake assets. So uh, as an outsider reading the book, that seems to me the main way they managed to hide this. So uh, you could maybe explain some of these transactions. There was one, uh, a very dodgy looking little Indian company called Hermes, which was transformed overnight into a large private equity fund. Uh, maybe you could explain some of these transactions for people who listen to this and how you go about uh, creating fake cash. So if you're committing accounting fraud, the problem that you have to solve for is there should be cash here, but there isn't because it's fake. Nothing real is happening. And so what the auditors are supposed to do day one of the audit each year is ask to see the bank balances and then they contact the banks and check them themselves. So one of the ways you can solve that problem as a fraudster is to spend your fake cash. So this is what it looked like Wirecard was doing from about 2010 onwards. It bought a whole series of companies across Asia. And what I think was going on was they would find a pretty rubbish company, not worth very much. So they would pay, say, 10 million euros for it. 
then they would turn around and announce to the stock market that they bought a tremendous business that was worth 50 million euros. And what you can then do is spend 40 million of your fake cash on this, on, you know, the fake valuation. And as you're buying these sorts of businesses with people who now know not to ask questions because they're getting a handsome amount of money for their rubbish business, you can do all sorts of other tricks. You can send money in circles, sort of make them appear profitable like that. And one of the amazing things that, um, that I really enjoyed reporting was this India transaction. So this was the biggest. 2015, they announced their largest ever acquisition. They're spending 300 million euros on this Indian business. And what it turns out is organizing a fraudulent transaction involves an awful lot of work similar to organizing a normal M&A transaction. And so they use this software called Fleep. It's a sort of, you know, a Teams collaboration tool, a bit like Slack, if you've ever come across it. And they thought they had deleted their archives, but they made that classic mistake of just deleting it for them. So the archives were still there. So I was able to sort of read through them putting together this fraudulent transaction. And, you know, I won't bore you with all of the details, but basically they find these two Indian brothers and persuade them to sell them the business to them for... 30 million and then tell the world that they've paid 300 million for it so now we know how to hide cash uh when this fraud began you did it to 2010 the market cap of this company was 1 billion it got to 28 billion even as the fraud got bigger and bigger as you say there's a certain inevitability to the to the size of this now in 2016 it did seem that ey one of the big four had work this out in Singapore, and a lot of the fraud was going on in, in Asia. Can you explain why that obvious red flag that was raised for EY, how the company managed to get past that? So one of the mind-boggling things about this whole affair is what was happening with the audit firm Ernst & Young, because EY was just negligent in various different places. But what we discover is that different teams at different times were raising serious questions about what was happening at Wirecard inside EY. So it has all of these subsidiaries all over the place. One of them, which is quite important, is Singapore. And the local team in Singapore refused to sign off on the accounts. And this turns into a big argument. It drags on for, I think, almost two years. But for some reason, EY and head office doesn't seem to have been that bothered by it. You know, it's just one small subsidiary. It's not material. And then what's going on in Singapore turns out to be quite key to the whole story. A whistleblower gets in touch with the FT. Actually, I mean, it's the whistleblower's mother. <laughs> this incredible woman who her son has done the right thing, investigated found a bunch of little frauds and, you know, people sending $2 million out here, $2 million out there, sort of thing you would expect a company to care about. But when he reports this to head office in Germany, he gets fired. And so she is not going to let them get away with doing that to her son. 
So she's the one who first gets in touch with me and says, hey, I've got something here to look at. So armed with this whistleblower's information, we start writing stories. There's fraud going on. And there are a couple of lessons from this, I think, that are quite important. One is the mistake all the investors made. What they did is they looked at the numbers, which admittedly at this stage weren't particularly large. We were talking about $30 million worth of fake contracts at a company with $2 billion in annual sales. What they should have looked at were the practices. Why on earth were people inside Wirecard's finance team running around faking contracts? And why weren't they all fired immediately? But then if you want to get this problem past Ernst & Young, then you have to control the flow of information. So EY had sort of been put on notice and was asking serious questions. And what Wirecard did was sort of this daisy chain of professional consultants. So there were some very clear issues that had to be looked at. So it hired a law firm who hired a consulting firm who wrote a report, who provided that to another law firm, who then provided their report to Ernst & Young. And they all had their professional reputations, big brand names at the top. But really, this was all Wirecard using them like puppets because it was giving them, controlling the information that they had to look at in the first place. So if you look in the small print of every report, it's, you know, based on the information provided to us. And so obviously they found no fraud. And, um, and so they, you know, this series of reports and a bunch of other stuff was given to EY and they were you know, okay, fine, we're happy to sign off the audit yet again. So even the accountants uh, couldn't do very much. Uh, and then, of course, there is you, and there are also some short sellers publishing reports on, on Wirecard. One would think there's a large dossier put together by you and others on, on this. It goes to the German regulator, Baffin, and then, just as you expect Baffin to act on this, they they begin to investigate the Financial Times for stock price manipulation. Uh, why, so the, there's obviously a strange relationship between Baffin and this company. What do you credit that strange relationship to? It's kind of astonishing, isn't it? We publish stories saying there's fraud at this company and the authorities investigate us. And one of the tiny details, which you know still nags at me, is... The regulator Baffin gets a dossier three or four days before our first story appears. And instead of looking at that and saying, hey, there's a good faith effort by whistleblowers to alert us to what's happening, they see it as part of a conspiracy. Maybe this is all part of the effort to try and manipulate the Wirecard share price. And, you know, there's also some evidence of, I guess, kind of bumbling stupidity in there. You know, they, you know, one of the things they find suspicious is um, a couple of different hedge funds have been mentioned in this report they put together. And they note that their offices are only 400 metres apart. And it's like, yes, because they're in Mayfair. They're hedge funds. You can't throw a stone without hitting a hedge fund in Mayfair. So I tend more towards incompetence. They just really didn't understand what was happening. And also defence of their own record. 
the regulator had repeatedly investigated critics of Wirecard over the years, sort of notably in 2008, 2016, and again now in 2019. So I think by buying this story of conspiracy against this one German company, they were sort of defending their own previous decisions. But I'm also aware that's a kind of dissatisfying answer, you know, for why the entire organisation of a state came down to protect this fraudulent company. Well, there's a suggestion, I mean, not necessarily even by you, but by others, that there was a certain amount of patriotism involved here, that they didn't want to see a German company attacked by nasty Anglo-Saxons. I I assume from Curzon Street, given your definition. (laughs) uh, Do you think there was an element of that as well, that was a a regular trying to protect their own from something they saw as destructive of what was seen as a great German success story, as you said, the, the eBay of Europe? I mean, I think John Lanchester in the LRB had a good theory about this, which was there was a certain complacency amongst the German elite, which you see in various different aspects of we're good at business. And this sort of thing, a giant accounting fraud, just wouldn't happen here. And so I think there was a little bit of patriotism. You know, it was easier to imagine dubious foreign speculators and corrupt journalists somewhere over there, you know, across the water. But I think it's also the important thing to remember with big complex accounting frauds is the kind of the dark magic of it, which is they work by looking as closely as possible like a normal set of transactions, business processes, you know. And so there was this social proof going on. If you're a regulator and you walk into the room, say, and there's Wirecard with its very successful billionaire chief executive and his black turtleneck, you know, making pronouncements about the bold future of the cashless economy. And all these successful professional investors are lapping it up. And the banks are standing next to him. You've got Deutsche Bank, Bank, they're lending them money. And Ernst and Young are over in the corner saying, yep, the accounts are good, we've checked them. So it's quite a hard thing to look around that room and go, well, hang on, all these other people are very serious. Surely they wouldn't be here if there was something wrong. And what we always find is that everyone else is doing the same thing. No one has, everyone assumes that someone somewhere has done the work, but it turns out always nobody has. I seem to remember that Hans Christian Andersen wrote a short story about this once. <laughs> is no clothes. It's human nature, isn't it? It's still going on. Uh, and also, we have come to fear the black turtleneck now. It's, uh, it's not always a sign of, uh, of good things lurking behind one thinks of Theranos. Uh, we need to talk about this man, uh, Marcelac. It's quite an incredible story. And anybody who puts his name into the internet will find a photograph of his wanted poster. He is still on the run with and without a beard. So tell us what you think you can say about Mr. Marcelac and uh, his role in this and his connections. I mean, I read out at the beginning some of the alleged connections, and one never knows in this world whether alleged connections are true connections to two secret services. But uh, tell us what you think you know about Mr. Marcelac. So I've got one of those wanted posters right over my shoulder behind me right now because while I was writing the book, I'm trying to get in the head of this guy who... Everybody says is a sort of genius. 
Like they called him that inside wire card. He was their chaotic genius. And he is the quintessential tech guy. Drops out of high school. Too much of a hurry to go to university or even learn to drive. He doesn't have the time. And, you know, he starts his own company but quickly gets poached by Wirecard. And he's Austrian, like the chief exec, uh, Marcus Brown. And they basically become very close very quickly, almost like an older brother, younger brother situation. And everybody who comes into his orbit is totally charmed. Like he dresses beautifully. He could talk for hours and hours on any subject you care to imagine. And people are wrapped. And he's the master of never accepting the premise of the question. Like, negativity just does not occur to him. It's relentless positivity. Everything's going to work. And there's an element which it turns out he doesn't really know what he's doing. It's all just harebrained schemes. And he's got no interest in details or sorting things out. You know, he's the salesman who does the deal, puts it all together, and is immediately on to the next thing. Doesn't care, you know, what happens afterwards. So, so when, did, when did you begin to see that he didn't know what he was doing? Clearly, the shareholders probably stayed with the genius story, at least until t- 2019. But when was it obvious to you that he wasn't what he seemed to be? So this was only afterwards, as I'm sort of researching the book, and I'm sort of talking to people who knew him and learning more about this sort of strange life that he led. Because while we're trying to bring the company down, he is the number one enemy. He's the one who we know is pulling the strings, like hiring the private detectives, the hackers, pushing back against our reporting sort of mingling with the speculators. And what we start to realise is he's also got this James Bond kind of fixation or double life going on, where by day he's a senior executive at a finance company. By night he's hanging out with Libyan militiamen and Russian mercenaries. For instance, he can't go on holiday. And so he's complaining about how he can't go on holiday. And so his friends ask him, well, Jan, what is it you really want to do? So he says to them, I want to do something which no one else in the world can. So one of his friends pipes up, well, how would you like to go to Syria? My friends there in the Wagner group have just cleared Palmyra of ISIS and we can go and have a little walk around. And... It's one of the sort of the mysteries right at the heart of the book, which is, well, who is this guy? And how on earth does he get to know these guys? And who is he really working for? And there's an element of he's definitely with these guys and he's definitely making these connections and trying to do this stuff. But at the same time, so he gets to Syria and he turns up with the best body armor money can buy. Um, sort of, you know, carbon fibre helmet. He's got this jacket which has got a bulletproof vest and Kevlar built into it. It's like the Armani of um, of uh, protective wear. And the Russian soldiers are looking at it going, yeah, this is some really nice stuff you've got here. But if we take you for a walk around here wearing this, every sniper in the area is going to think you're the number one VIP and they're going to shoot you dead. So he leaves it in the hotel. And that's kind of the enigma of Jan. 
he sort of is right there doing all the things that you expect, but at the same time, he doesn't quite seem to get it or know what he's doing. And you see it with, like, uh, the stuff he tries to do in business. I mean, it gets slightly complicated with the details, but his colleagues have this moment where they're like, what on earth are you talking about? That's not something we do or a product we make, or that's just not how the world works. And he's like, oh, okay, never mind. Heron scheme. We'll never talk of it again. It is easy to dismiss people like this as kind of Walter Mitty characters, but there was an awful lot of work to hide this fraud going on in the background. He was the instigator of that. You're pretty sure that it was him who was doing that. I think he was very clearly the person who was managing it, who was running it, and was in charge of that whole part of the business. Now, one of the questions is how much did the chief executive Marcus Brown know? because he claims to be a victim of Yan, that he had no idea what was really happening inside this company he ran for 15 years, or how his protégé had invented half of the company's sales. So, believe that if you may or not. But there's also this other intriguing character at the margins, called Henry O'Sullivan, who is this sort of boisterous, fat... English businessman who is the massive party guy, like very smart, who is always behind the scenes. So in the money laundering phase, he was doing a lot of payments through Wirecard for sort of porn and gambling at the sharp end of um, payments. And he's the one who puts the India deal together and seems to be the guy who certainly companies very connected to him get all the cash from it because a lot of real cash does come out. And so Jan was definitely involved, but how closely he was working with this Henry character in Singapore, again, it's one of those things that it's, you know, we still haven't quite got the full story of that. And you have these guys in the shadows. And so, yeah, Jan was definitely working with him. He was definitely working with secret services and who is controlling who so this story has a long way to run as we sit here today who has actually been charged with anything uh marcus brown the former chief executive goes on trial early next year and um two senior members of the wirecard management team but not super senior are going on trial with him so the deputy cfo and someone who was running, like, one of the large fraudulent businesses. But noticeably, ab- no, but absent from that list of people going on trial is the former CFO who was there for 10 years, um, a couple of other executives who signed lots of documents and should have known what was going on. So they've limited the prosecution attempts in some way to, you know, just three people in Germany, which kind of beggars belief. And then in Singapore, um, that guy, Henry O'Sullivan, I mentioned, he is going on trial for forging documents. At some point, he's been charged. And I think they've charged sort of four or five minor players there. But there's also the guy who, you know, I was about to say faked his own death. But, you know, we can't prove that. He just, uh, shortly after Wirecard collapsed, he got an infected boil and uh, died of septicemia in um, a Philippine hospital. I must admit, I read that story and I thought I'm going to be particularly careful with boils going forward. (laughs) 
so we must always avoid a chief executive who wears high-end body armor and a black polo neck. So we're, we're, you know, we've got some of the lead indicators here of that. But uh, they were flashing red for a long time. Uh, one, uh, you know, kind of right at the top, the company decides that it would be a very good idea if it bought Deutsche Bank, which is, <laughs> and I think the reason behind this is if you got all those Deutsche Bank assets, the fraud would disappear into a great big black hole. But explain why anybody thought this company should really bid for Deutsche Bank. The kind of amazing thing is that Deutsche Bank has been so badly run for two decades that its stock was actually worth less than Wirecard's. I think, you know, whilst this was happening, Deutsche Bank was worth about 16, 17 billion euros market capitalization, even though it has, I think, one of the largest balance sheets of any bank in the world. It's systemically important. And I guess at that point, because Wirecard was still seen as a tech company, you know, and Europe really doesn't have many of those, and it was in finance, there was kind of an idea that, well, maybe if you have a tech company running the bank, it could sort of sort it out and modernise it and make it, you know, futury and efficient. I, I don't think people really focus on the details when they think through these kind of things. It's just sort of big picture sprinkling of tech magic. Mm. And certainly, you know, could they do a worse job than Deutsche Bank have done? Now, whether they could have gotten away with it, that's a very interesting question, uh, which would have become political quite quickly. But you know, it was quite a straightforward thing. Wirecard shares were worth more than Deutsche Bank's. So they really were putting together a hostile takeover bit. Um, and I think had the Financial Times not come along and sort of published these stories saying, oh, yeah, no, by the way, their sales are fake. I really think they would have given it a go. And, I mean, can you imagine now the guy in the black turtleneck would be reshaping the entire financial system, lauded as, you know, the visionary of the next decade? I want to go back to one other uh, fraud that was underway here, a very common one, actually. But I just wanted to read from your book, and then we can maybe discuss how accountants are supposed to catch this particular fraud. And it's round, it's called round tripping, which is old as, as old as the trip, never mind uh, the round trip. Uh, and this is what you say. A lump of money would leave the bank wire card owned in Germany destined for the subsidiary in Hong Kong, which was applying for the payments license. But it would stay there only momentarily, just long enough to satisfy regulators that the business was well funded. Next, the cash would depart to sit briefly in the books of an external partner, partner in brackets, from where it would travel back to wire card in India. In each country, the individual legs of the trip would look to local auditors like legitimate business. In Hong Kong, the partner was a supplier being paid, while in India it was a valued wirecard customer. In reality, the money would move in a circle. Uh, how did the auditors miss this? I mean, it's the same amount of money, and I think they staggered their year ends to make sure that this money could appear at everyone's balance sheet in, sequ in sequence. So uh, what are auditors supposed to do about that, and why did they fail to spot it? It's quite a tricky thing the way Wirecard had structured it, because each country had a different audit firm. So 
EY was looking at it overall, and I think was maybe one part in the chain, but then there were other local auditors. So if you're an auditor, you would check, well, what's the cash there? And I guess, yes, it it was there on the balance sheet, and then it went, and there's a legitimate invoice. And so that thing is quite hard to spot if you aren't looking for it. But... Um, and so I think it's it's unlikely that an auditor is going to catch one-off transactions like that. But they're all a kind of a wash. There's no real money there. There's no real profit, is it? It's sort of the money comes in, the money goes out. And I think over time, if you start trying to see lots of those, then you'll end up with, um, you know, a lot of receivables or, you know, they'll want to go, well, what has the money been spent on? So this was for... I think that two million was for a market research report on the Malaysian payments market. So if anyone looked at that, they might go, hmm, two million dollars seems like an awful lot of money to spend on a bit of market research. Hmm. Um, but also what happened in this case was you start to involve a lot of people in that transaction. And one of those was a treasurer in Singapore who said, hang on a second, this all looks a bit dodgy to me. And that person was the one who raised the alarm internally, which started this whole chain of events, which led to the whistleblower getting in touch with me. So I think that, you know, the auditors, I'd be surprised if the auditors pick up that sort of thing. But the more staff you involve, the harder it becomes to hide a fraud because you run the risk that someone raises the alarm. So we, they appointed KPMG to investigate Wirecard. And this is what you say on KPMG. KPMG had been appointed to settle a simple question. Did Wirecard's customers actually exist? Six months and many hour miles later, it was unable to say for sure. We have a situation. We have KPMG. We have EY. We have Baffin. We have Moody's. We have SoftBank. Without the whistleblower, would this still be going on? I think there's a very good chance it would. If you look at what happened to the meme stocks sort of after Wirecard collapsed, Wirecard was the most shorted company in Europe. And it probably would have got embraced by the same guys who bought GameStop and that sort of thing. You know, they might have launched their takeover bid. So without the whistleblower... Uh, you know, I certainly would have been trying to find something, but it was that breakthrough. It was, it was literally the documents which they handed me that was the key to Wirecard's downfall. So we owe them a great deal of thanks because, yeah, otherwise I think Wirecard could still be going. It would have run out of cash eventually. But, you know, SoftBank still might have turned up and thrown a billion euros at it. We, we can't go on forever, though we could go on forever about this book because we've only just really scratched the surface. Uh, I just want to leave it. I mean, one day you may meet Jan Marsalak again. It's certainly possible, uh, and who knows in what circumstances, but I think we know the most likely circumstances if you are to meet him again. What would you say to him? What's, what's the one piece, what's the, what, the burning question that you really had that, assuming he was going to give you an honest answer, what's the question you would most like to ask Jan Marsalak. 
I don't think I would get an honest answer. <laughs> but what I would be fascinated to know is, was there a moment when Yan realised he'd passed the point of no return? Because frauds don't usually start with the intention of becoming this giant company. You're filling a hole, fixing a problem. And quite often you see the people involved thought they could make it up again. We'll get, we'll get it back next quarter or next year. But he must have known at some point there was no going back. And maybe that's when the crazy lifestyle the stealing the tens or hundreds of millions started. And, you know, or was he always a spy or was it, well, I'm a criminal now, might as well have some fun. So I would just love to know, you know, if, if he was going to sit down and be honest, how did he go from being the tech whiz kid to the master criminal? Well, I hope, Dan, you get to ask that question one day and uh, that we'd all be a fly in the wall, perhaps. But anyway, congratulations. I mean, obviously not just on the book, but for the whole investigation. Perseverance at no small personal risk. And um, it's a wonderful piece of work. And just do four or five more of these. And then uh, <laughs> we do think they're probably out there somewhere and they, they don't fall into your lap every day, but it'd be uh, wonderful if you could keep it up and there's plenty to be obviously plenty to be discovered out there do you think so i mean without mentioning names are you working on anything else well, well that's very kind russell thank you for all of that and i am still very busy <laughs> i think we're going to have you back on this podcast and it may take a year or two given the nature of your employment and your work and how difficult it is to uncover these things but uh yeah keep up the good work uh, your society and your country and the world needs you well done oh uh, well thank you Thanks for listening. The Library of Mistakes is based in Edinburgh. To explore it in person, simply go to libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader, and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy nuggets from our extensive collection of books, watch videos of our talks, and keep up to date with what we're up to, do follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. <laughs>